The Australian Defence Magazine podcast. Serving the business of defence. With Grant McHeron and Ewan Levick. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. This episode, we'll be chatting with Marcus Hellyer, Senior Analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, generally known as ASPE, and we'll be getting his predictions on the pending defence strategic review and possible impacts from the October budget. Marcus, welcome to the show. Hello. Great to have you here once again. And uh, also joining us, of course, is Ewan Levick, publisher at ADM Group. Ewan, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Grant. Okay, Ewan, do you want to open up with the first question for Marcus? I will, Marcus. Fairly open-ended one. What are your broad predictions for the Defence Strategic Review? Well, that's a big question, and I'm not Nostradamus, and um, as we all know, our ability to predict the future is pretty poor. So uh, what I have to say here is is not uh, authoritative in any way, shape, or form. So what, what do we know? Well, the first thing is, is that We've sort of had this amazing expanding strategic review trajectory in the last sort of six months. So the Labor Party, when it was putting out its election platform, started off with something that looked like a fairly traditional force posture review, which is essentially defence terminology for working out which bits of the ADF are going to go where. And it normally looks like Northern and Western Australia saying more of the ADF should be up here. Um, Defence going, oh, that's a bit difficult. We don't really like that. And we sort of come to a bit of a compromise where we sort of do a little bit more in the north, but the basic force posture stays the same. Then the government, uh, when the Labor Party came into government, it sort of expanded beyond that to what we would call a force structure review, which is essentially looking at the stuff in the shopping list in Defence's investment plan. But then when we saw the terms of reference come out uh, about a month ago, it sort of was even broader than that again. So it wasn't just, you know, what's in the ADF, where is it going to go, but it was a lot of the underpinning Uh, stuff as well. So looking at logistics, looking at personnel, and also the big question of how much money is needed. So it's now a very, very large review. But then the flip side of that is the government has said it has to be done by the time the Nuclear Submarine Task Force delivers its report with a recommendation on the optimal way forward for Australia's nuclear submarine capability. So the timeline for that was 18 months after the initial AUKUS announcement, which was September last year, we're nearly a a year into that. Uh, So that would get us to about the end of March. So it's an awful lot of work to get done by the end of March, considering the the scope of that review. And we're also hearing a few things about the timeline. So the review team of Angus Houston, former CDF, and Steve Smith, former Minister for Defence under the previous Labor government, they're meant to be delivering a preliminary report by the end of October. Well, hmm, we're almost at the start of September, so that's only two months away, and one suspects that preliminary report is not going to be too much different from the the final report. So it's an awful lot of work to get done in a very short time period. Now, the the, the sceptic 
So crusty old people like me might go, well, if there's not much time to do that, probably what defence would like is simply to go to the review team and say, oh, look, here's one we prepared earlier. Oh, and guess what? It kind of looks a lot like the force we had planned already. Um, you know, so let's go with that. My sense is uh, the review team probably won't simply go, sure, that looks good. Let's just, you know, change the date on that from the 2024 structure plan or the 2016 uh, defence capability plan or the 2009 defence capability plan and simply, you know, write 2022 on the front. My, my sense is they do want to do uh, some changes and, uh, the question is going to be how much time do they have to really work through that? And of course, if they want to do changes, um, it will take money. And as we know, the defence budget is always chockers. It's, there's always a plan for how to spend the existing funding. So if you want to put new things in, either the government, which is under a lot of budget pressure, has to find more money or you have to change the plan and take some things out that are already in the plan. And um, I think more money will be a little um, challenging, a little unpalatable to the government, which has a lot of stakeholders that got it into power that it needs to take care of. And changing the existing plan will be quite unpalatable to defence because it's essentially staked its credibility over the last decade or so on the existing plan. So it's going to be, I think, quite challenging for the the review team to do big muscle movements, even if it wants to do big muscle movements. So, and, and whether it can succeed in that, I think may depend a bit on the willingness of the government, in particular, the Deputy Prime Minister slash Defence Minister to back the review team. Marcus, you've mentioned uh, 2016, we had a defence white paper, 2020, we've had a four structure plan as you said, it's going to be very difficult to do any muscle movements outside the pre-existing plan for the defence review. So what is the point? Look, the crusty old cynics might say, well, this is just what all new governments do. It's kind of their right to come in and do a, a bit of a check at what they've inherited. You know, and it, yeah, I think they do need to do due diligence. Every incoming government, you know, has a good look at the plan they've inherited because we have to remember that the way our parliamentary system works is that, you know, the the government does everything it can to deny uh, the opposition getting useful information. Uh, so they don't publish much because if you make any information available to the public, by default, you're making it available to the opposition and that's the last thing they want to do. So the poor old opposition always comes into government not sort of really knowing too much. So they have this period where they're just really trying to, you know, in a drinking from a fire hose kind of fashion, get their head around what's going on. So the question is, is this review simply uh, trying to get their head around what's going on and understand what they've inherited? And once they've understood it, they go, oh, yeah, that looks looks about right. Yeah, sure. Or are they going to say we want to do something, you know, quite different? I'm, despite being a crusty old cynic, I'm a little hopeful that they will try and do something a little different in some areas. There was some... Uh concern about uh, former Minister Smith being on the review panel. The opposition was quick to point out that uh, he presided over a large number of cuts in defence. What's your thoughts on that? 
Well, uh, my view is, is, well, first of all, the defence minister alone does not set the, set the defence budget. So, you know, he wasn't going up there saying, hey, here's my plan, colleagues in Cabinet, to slash the defence budget. He would have been told, here's the, the billions you need to find. Now, also, if we go back in time, we were, A, at that point in time, coming out of the global financial crisis. We were also at a point in time where this idea of surpluses was kind of was still a thing which you know that is now ancient history after covid and even conservative governments have chucked the idea of budget surpluses out the window the the then labor government had made a commitment to get the budget back into surplus and to do that they cut the defense budget ironically it, it didn't help them get back into surplus but it did give the coalition you know essentially 10 years of easy kicks so you know smith was you know, had to deliver budget cuts. And, you know, as somebody who at that point in time, I was actually administering Defence's investment program and I was one of the guys who was trying to work out how to make the plan fit a substantially reduced amount of money. It, it wasn't fun. So I understand the impact of, of that. What I will say, however, is in my experience, Stephen Smith was somebody who would push back on advice from Defence. He wouldn't simply roll over and agree with what Defence said. And I think that's exactly what you want in a Defence Minister. So good on him. The other thing I would say is uh, under Stephen Smith, we reached kind of the nadir of Collins class availability. And while people have said, oh, he should have done more to progress the future submarine project, it seems to me his view was, Defence, you got to fix Collins before I'm going to get you a new submarine. And actually, Defence did fix Collins. You know, after through the Coles review, um, it actually turned the Collins enterprise around and Collins, you know, achieved essentially world benchmarks in availability. And I think that was driven by Stephen Smith. So, you know, you, you can dislike him, you can like him, but I think a lot of the the criticism is a little misplaced. You actually want somebody who is going to push back on defence and Smith did that. Marcus, we'll definitely circle back to submarines uh, in a minute, but I do want to ask what changes you anticipate from the forthcoming budget to to defence funding? Which programs do you think are most likely to shift up or down or cease existing? Well, so the new government has said it's going to do a budget in October. My sense is it's going to be very hard for the government to change the existing funding line while a the defence strategic review is in motion. So particularly when one of the terms of reference for the strategic review is to actually say, well, how much money is needed to defend Australia? So if, if, so if we go back, the white paper put out, the 2016 white paper, the then government put out a 10-year funding plan. You know, it, people keep saying, oh, they committed to 2% of GDP. No, that's not what they did. What they did is they said, we don't want to tie the defence budget to 2% of GDP. It actually set out in black and white a clear funding line over the, the subsequent decade. Four years later, in the 2020 Defence Strategic Review, they extended that funding line for another four years, out to 2930. So what Labor has inherited essentially is that is a funding line that goes for a further eight years built into that funding line is 
um, real increases. So going all the way back to 2016, there are real funding increases built into that funding line. It's not just the effect of inflation, it's real funding increases. And um, while I may criticise what the previous government spent some of that money on, to their credit, they actually delivered the funding set out in that white paper and then in the DSU. So they actually delivered the funding they promised and it, it had real increases built into it. That said, the funding line that Defence has now is exactly the same as what came out of the 2016 white paper. Okay, so yes, there are real increases built into that, but that funding line was developed back in 2015, essentially, and the world has significantly changed in that point in time. So we hadn't even really quite understood that China was essentially annexing the South China Sea. And so we've seen, and we've seen many other changes since then. So the first question is, is a funding line developed in 2015 adequate for our current strategic circumstances? And I think that's one of the, the main jobs of the Defence Strategic Review to work out. So I think it would essentially pull the rug out from underneath the Defence Strategic Review if the government uh, in October put out a funding line that um, either reduced the amount of money uh, or actually said, well, here, here's a new envelope, even if it's bigger, it sort of constrains their freedom of action. So, you know, what, if I was the, the government, what I'd say is here's the defence budget, um, but for now, until we finish the Defence Strategic Review, we are just essentially maintaining the existing funding line, um, keeping on going on with business as usual until the re review finishes. Now, again, I'm not Nostradamus. They could do something different. But if I was Stephen Smith and Angus Houston and said, hang on, you asked me to work out what the force is we need to defend Australia and tell you how much money is required, but you've already answered the question of how much money there is, you know, it's a bit unfair. You're sort of changing the, the ground rules um, before we even get too too far into it. One, one question for you around programs and things like that. Famously, or notoriously, back in April, we discovered that uh, the RAF's Air 7003 project, the Sky Guardian, the MQ-9B drone, was being cancelled to take the money and put it into Red Spice, the cyber project. Do you think there's any chance the Sky Guardian could be returned? Uh, anything is possible, uh, but I think you've, you've sort of indicated one of the the key issues here, and that is, unless the government comes up with a bunch new money, and everyone can have their own views on how likely that is, noting, you know, we have deficits extending far into the future, you know, we have, we're still in the tail end of the COVID pandemic, we're facing significant inflation, which eats into government's buying power, it's already eating into defence's buying power. You know, um, real increases to the defence budget seem a, a little challenging. You know, I'm not, but I'm not saying they won't do it. I think where we've gotten to in sort of our, with our political classes at the moment is both sides of politics of mainstream politics understand the China challenge. Okay, and they understand we are facing a a coercive, aggressive China that is attempting to reshape the, the certainly the the order in the 
Indo-Pacific, but more globally as well, and they're willing to use uh, coercion to do that. So both sides of politics uh, understand that. And so those people who go, oh, defence is going to, uh, Labor's going to cut the defence budget like they did 10 years ago, I think the world has moved on since since then. Now, does that mean they're going to find more money? Well, again, I think both sides of politics are a little more comfortable with deficits than we were 10 years ago. So it's always possible. But probably if uh, the review team are trying to put new things in, uh, it's going to have to come largely. They have to show a willingness and Defence has to show a willingness to give things up that are in there already. Uh, the, the issue there is, is a lot of those things have been there for a very long time, so there's a lot of inertia, you know, if you want to take out some of those things. Plus, the, you know, the government has said, well, SSNs, nuclear submarines, they're not on the table for reconsideration. They've said the Hunter-class frigates aren't on the, the table for reconsideration or cancellation. Those are the two biggest programs in Defence's shopping list, so, you know, that ties up a lot of funding that's not available. That said... Let's be honest, the defence budget this year is $48.6 billion, you know, where, where, you know, and over the decade, you know, it's over half a trillion dollars, you know, so pretty soon we'll be starting to talk real money. So if, if defence's automatic response is, oh, we can't do anything new or we can't do anything different because there's no money, well, if I, me as the, the government would be saying, hey, we're giving you guys half a trillion dollars, you might want to think a little more creatively here, particularly when that half a trillion dollars isn't delivering a lot of those major mega project capabilities until deep into next decade. So we, we know the first Hunter-class frigate is not arriving until well into the 2030s. SSNs, I think hard to see any of them arriving before 2040. Land 400, Phase 3, big armoured vehicle project, that's not going to be fully delivered again until well into the 2030s. So it's interesting when we look at the time frame set out in the terms of reference for the review, it is specifically focusing in the next 10 years, so the the period out to 2032-33. Historically, when we look at these big exercises of white papers and things like that, they're looking in this kind of 20, 25-year kind of time frame. So in two, back in the 2009 white paper, which I was involved in, we were talking about Force 2030, you know, so it was 20 years away. Well, when you set those kinds of timelines, it gives people a lot of leeway to sit and admire the problem for a, a long time. And guess what? You know, in, in 2009, we'd, we were saying we'd get some new submarine capability in 2025. So that was 16 years away. So over the last 13 years, we've actually gone backwards. Wow. We've gone from being 16 years away from new capability to nearly 20 years away from new capability. So I have to say I am a big fan of these sort of shorter time frames, which basically say, tell me what you can do in, in the next few years. I'm not interested in a plan for perfection in 25 years' time that we know will never be delivered. Marcus, it's no secret that amongst all these um, changes that are taking place to the force structure of the ADF, that Army is under a lot of pressure, right? Like that $10 billion that you mentioned in the cancellation of Sky Guardian came out and funded Red Spice. Um, if the Hunter class and the SSNs are off the table, that means Army is the service that is facing budgetary pressure. Is that 
the right understanding to start with? And is, in your view, the money that's potentially coming out of Army and Phase Land 400 Phase 3 specifically and going into things like Red Spice, is that delivering a capability? Keeping in mind that if you're looking at Ukraine, the effect of cyber in some views has been limited. Yeah, so I don't want to say the money is coming out of Army. You know, I, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend the money coming out of Army. Look, you know, it's no secret that people at ASPE have raised questions about should you be spending 18 to $27 billion on infantry fighting vehicles. I'm, you know, I'm not saying don't acquire, recapitalise the Army's armoured capability. I think all, all we've really been trying to do is to say, well, what's a, what is the concept for Army other than a kind of argument that says, well, you need protection, okay? Well, tell us what are the kinds of scenarios you're looking at, particularly in an era of great power competition. But, you know, I can see many things that I would be spending money on um, in, in, in land combat capability, you know. So uh, it's, it's interesting that, you know, we've heard people from Army say, well, you, you need a, a balanced combined arms force. And I go, sure. But the concept of combined arms changes over time. And while Army's willing to spend 20 to $25 billion on infantry fighting vehicles, the Army and the ADF as a whole still does not have a single armed drone. You know, so at some level, you're sort of going, that sounds a little unbalanced <laughs> at, at the moment when we see how people are conducting combined arms operations around the world. So, um, and there are many aspects of land capability, which I think um, we should be uh, doubling down on. So the long range fires, which has recently, we've, it's been announced that we'll be acquiring HIMARS. I think that's a, a really good thing. We should certainly be pursuing PRISM. So the, the much longer range um, missile for HIMARS, you know, so, um, you know, I'm not uh, necessarily saying take the money out of land capability. Um, now, however, you there are people who could make that argument. You know, it, it does come down. To, once we start talking about shopping lists, you very quickly sort of have to start going back up along that golden thread of logic to, and you pretty quickly get to some pretty fundamental questions of what is the ADF for? You know, uh, at, at a and you need answers at a sort of more granular level than, well, to defend Australia and its interests, you know. So what are the contingencies you're preparing for? You know, and in a sense, a lot of the, the debate around armour comes back to a sort of more fundamental philosophical discussion, which is do you plan to counter particular threats? You know, and we have plenty of examples of countries that have, done that. So if you're West Germany in the Cold War, you're planning to counter thousands of Soviet tanks coming over the border, very clear and present danger. Or do you plan for, do you say, we have a terrible record of, of preparing for the future. We don't know what the future will bring. So don't, you know, invest in too much in particular capabilities, but invest very broadly. So you've got a range of capabilities. So you've got something no matter what happens down the track. I'd say in the Australian context, we've tended to do more the latter approach, but that's because we haven't had a, a clear and present threat. So you might say, well, now there is one, maybe that's what you should be 
preparing for, and it could lead to quite a different force structure. And so to get back to the Defence Strategic Review, you know, one question is, yeah, what's the philosophy they're adopting? Are they saying, you know, well, there's a, a, a growing China that's coercive and aggressive and s- seeking to change the glo- global order, and so we should be, you know, focusing primarily on that, or do we have sort of the, a, a kind of balanced force so we can do something no matter what happens anywhere, regardless of whether it's got caused by China? Marcus, I've got a question I've always wanted to ask you. And just as you were talking about, um, you know, high Mars and long-range fires as being things that you would invest in, I thought of this. If Anthony Albanese walked into your office right now and said, Marcus, funding's unlimited, buy what you want, <laughs> what would you go out and buy? <laughs> I'd buy a nice little island in the South Pacific and <laughs> surf. Oh, oh, you mean for me yeah. or for defence? No, no, no. Okay, for, de- <laughs> for, for defence. Um, <laughs> look, it's a bit of a Dorothy Dixer. Uh, look, I'm, I keep sort of coming back to be the B-21 bomber, so the program that the US Air Force is, is developing um, at the moment. Why do I keep coming back to B-21 well, in part, it's basically to kind of prod the debate along the lines of what actually do we want a long-range strike capability for? What are we trying to do there? Again, what are the con- the threats, the contingencies, the scenarios where we want to uh, we, we need a long-range strike capability? Um, so you know, I, I'm not sort of thinking we will actually get it, but I think it's a useful tool to provoke a bit of debate around that because I think at the moment. So let's go back to that issue of why do we have the ADF? Is it primarily to defend Australia, you know, the continent of Australia, or is it to plug into larger coalition forces and go wherever the crisis of the day is? And if you look at Australian history, that debate goes all the way back to the founding of the Royal Australian Navy, when Australians were basically saying, well, we wanted to defend Australia. And the the empire was saying, no, no, you're part of the empire. Um, The Royal Australian Navy will go wherever the empire thinks it's needed. And those sort of poles still characterise a lot of our our thought. And, you know, I think if basically we are saying the ADF is there, it will go wherever it is needed as part of a broader coalition operation. I think our traditional force planning views um, of a bit of everything are pretty much, they're okay. They're okay. You'll always have something to plug into that coalition. If we're saying, no, we actually seriously need to take responsibility for a sort of self-reliant defence of Australia, uh, then I think we need to start asking some some hard questions. Now, that self-reliant defence of Australia has always been sort of the populist view of the ADF because it's a much easier sell to the Australian public than saying we're developing the ADF to send somewhere else to help the Americans, you know. Um, so, okay, then if it's all about the defence of Australia, well, where does that begin? You know, does it begin one missile shot out of Darwin or do, do we want to be have greater reach? Now, so this gets us into A2AD concepts and anti-access area denial concepts. Um, 
i.e. we're not going out into the world to, to cause trouble, we're just going to make it hard for anybody to project force against us. And again, that is the kind of popular view. And recently we saw Richard Miles, you know, use the porcupine analogy, you know, so we're, we're going to make ourselves really hard to to, to attack, you know, and the, the, there's also the, the, the echidna analogy. Um, I, I, I like the, you know, the Singapore has the the in the uh, poison prawn analogy. I like the indigestible wombat. You know, that's my, where we're big, but really hard to swallow and taste bad. Um, but then, you know, if you're sort of talking about porcupine, well, how long are, are the quills? You know, how, how far out do you reach? And you go, well, we've got, you know, super hornets and F-35s and some air-to-air refueling tankers and we've ordered some cool new missiles like the JASM ER, extended range JASM missile and the LRASM anti-ship missile. And, you know, JASM ER has a range of nearly a thousand kilometres. So you put that on a, a super hornet or a, an F-35 and you give them a bit of air-to-air refueling, you can reach out maybe and hit something maybe 2,000, even 2,500 kilometres away, best best case, and that that's not bad. You project that onto a map of the Indo-Pacific, well, it still doesn't get you that far out into the Indo-Pacific. But you also have that issue of major powers have escalation dominance, to use that American turn of phrase, which is whatever we can do, they can step it up a notch. So let's say we can, you know, stop their fighter their fighter planes uh, getting close to us. Well, then they go, ha, I've got the DF-26. I've got this long-range ballistic missile with a range of three or 4,000 kilometres. So I can, uh, wow, I can take out your F-35s potentially by lobbing missiles in, or I, I can do some strategic comms by dropping some DF-26s into the heart of downtown Darwin, for example, you know. So then you go, well, maybe I need something longer than fighter planes carrying missiles. So then that gets you into, well, do we get our own sort of long-range ballistic missiles or do we go with something like B-21, which has a range of, you know, maybe four to 5,000 kilometres, though we don't exactly know what that is. And then what are you doing with that capability? Well, to me, ultimately, I mean, I can list the things it could do. Well, it could sink ships, for example. It could sow sea mines. It could strike the infrastructure that supports enemy submarines. It could take out their air bases. It, you know, can I can list of all of those kind of effects. But to me, ultimately, it's sending that message which was set out actually in the 2020 Defence Strategic Review, which is we want longer range strike capabilities to cr create, essentially impose cost and risk on an adversary at greater range. And so, you know, if, if you can shape their thinking and make them go, gosh, anytime I come within 4,000 kilometres of Australia, I'm going to be potentially subject to, you know, a strike by a highly stealthy platform that can launch large numbers of, you know, advanced stealthy cruise missiles. And gosh, because it's an aircraft, it can come back again the next day, unlike a submarine, which once it launches all of its ordnance, it's we'll see you in a month or two when I've reloaded. Um, you know, it, it does kind of shape their thinking. Now, is it the most cost effective way, way to do that? You know, I think that's where a lot more analysis is is needed is you know is it something that can be done with 
acceptable, you know, can we generate the fundamental in inputs to capability here to sustain it? Again, a lot more work is needed. But, you know, if we are looking at a an era where, gosh, we don't actually have a lot of people, you know, the government, previous government said we need to grow defence by 20,000 people. On average, defence has managed growth of 300 people a year over the last six or seven years. So it's like, do the math, it's going to take us 60 years to grow the number of people we need. If, if you've got a capability where you're putting two bright young Australians in harm's way, flying a B-21, opposed to currently the 56 or so on a Collins, but potentially 130 or 140 on an American-designed SSN, you know, the two people looks a lot more sustainable and deliverable to me than does the 140, uh, you know, submariners. So, you know. I've got, to, I've got to say it's what you're describing there about the use of the B-21 sounds a lot like how things were in the 60s, 70s with the F-111. Yeah, look, yes, I, I agree. And and people go, oh, B-21, that's so big, it's so expensive. Yes. if uh, The problem is is the Goldilocks bomber doesn't exist. So something with longer range, more um, carrying, can carry more ordnance than, than a fighter plane at one end of the spectrum and, you know, B-21 costing a billion Aussie dollars per plane at the other end. If if there was something in that sweet spot that looked a lot like an F-111, that'd be awesome. Now, can, could it be done? Well, I mean, let's think a little outside the box and you go, well, we've, we've got this, this interesting creature called the fruit bat, which Boeing Australia have delivered, but what if we thought about, you know, uh, the other, sorry, did I call? I always call it the fruit bat. You called it the fruit it's bat. A ghost, ghost bat. <laughs> bat. Ghost bat. Yeah. I always go. Well, <laughs> well, like, so if we think about you know the ghost bat's big brother, and hey, how about we de de get Boeing to develop a, a twin engine version with longer range, and it could carry four long range strike missiles. It could carry them out, you know, three thousand kilometres, and then the missiles themselves have got another thousand kilometres. We're we're sort of talking similar range kind there. So call that one the fruit bat. <laughs> I don't know what you'd call the big brother, you know, like the <laughs> the, the hairy nosed yeah. bat. I don't know. <laughs> well it, it is it is a whole I mean we're running close to time here, but it is a whole interesting aspect. By the time the SSNs come online for us Will they be superseded by underwater unmanned vehicles that can do the similar job or take them out? And one submarine running a whole lot of them could do more damage than a fleet. So the, the world is changing, especially this whole uncrewed aspect. That, that's exactly right. And, you know, people people say to me, hang on, you're the big advocate of the small, the smart and the many, you know, these smaller, more affordable, you know, disposable uh, uncrewed systems, and I go, yeah, that that that's a fair cop, you know. I I, I, I sort of want them on the one hand and B twenty one on the other hand, but you know, <laughs> those small systems still do have a ra have range issues. You know, a a, a small UAV is not going to have four thousand kilometres range, but just as we're seeing all kinds of you know manned unmanned teaming concepts, um, you know, potentially uh, a, a, an aircraft like B twenty one can work with uncrewed systems, but. Um, the, you talked submarines and long time till the the few uh, SSNs arrives and who knows what the world is is going to be like then. Again, I, I would one of the reasons I keep um, pondering B twenty one is well maybe B twenty one is your best solution to the interim submarine problem.
Well, that is certainly one way of looking at it. And it's an incredible spot, I think, to end, leaving everyone contemplating that thought. So it's time that we wrap this one up. So, Marcus, thank you so much for joining you and I for this discussion. Yeah, thanks, it's, great. it's a pleasure. A pleasure. Anytime. Excellent. <laughs> we'll hold you up to that. It's been too long since your last session with us, so we'll bring you back again in the not-too-distant future, I suspect. But for now, thanks to everyone for listening once again. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, you can follow this podcast in your favorite podcatcher to ensure you get every episode as they're released. Meanwhile, thanks for tuning in, and we'll be back in the not-too-distant future with another informative episode. The ADM Podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yaffa media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.